welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Dr. Martin Shaw. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while, so let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Shaw. He's an acclaimed teacher of myth. He's an author of the award-winning Myth Teller Trilogy, a branch from The Lightning Tree, Snowy Tower, and Scatterlings. He founded the Oral Tradition and Mythic Life courses at Stanford University and is director of the West Country School of Myth in the UK. He has introduced thousands of people to mythology and how it penetrates modern life. For 20 years, he has been a wilderness rites of passage guide, working with at-risk youth, those who are unwell, returning veterans, as well as many uh, women and men seeking a deeper sense of life. So we could have talked, I would imagine, for an entire day. I would have, I would have not run out of questions <laughs> for Dr. Shaw, to say the least. But what we really talk about is, well, first off, Dr. Shaw shares quite a bit about his vigils, so spending time out in nature, spending 101 days in ceremony, out in nature, taking uh, taking vigils. We talk about mythology, what mythology can teach us about ourselves individually and collectively, about what mythology can tell us about the times that we're living in right now, the culture that we have uh, acquired. And we talk a little bit about rites of passage. Uh, we talk a good amount about descent and the descending into your own psyche, into the hardships of your life, and how we can look at the patterns and the, the narratives and the stories within myth and gain a tremendous amount of truth and understanding about the human experience, our existence as human beings, and spiritual capacities. So this is quite a depth-oriented conversation. I believe I'll have Dr. Shaw back on again soon to talk about the well, one of the things that we talked about is, is the Knights of the Round Table, so the King Arthur myths, legends, and stories. But what I found really interesting just before I welcome him on is the balance that this man brings between the sort of primal and sacred, the, the ethereal and and the sort of real life tangible tactical nature of existence and so as you listen to this conversation uh, i hope that you can listen from that perspective because he has a very poetic way of speaking to say the least so without any further delay please welcome and i hope you enjoy dr martin shaw all right dr shaw welcome to the show how are you doing today i'm well connor it's uh late january britain always cold, always misty, uh, and the mood is good. Yeah, wonderful. I was going to say, I'm, I'm upstate New York right now, but I'm from northern Canada, and so I, I'm familiar with the cold, very familiar with it. <laughs> um, well, let's, let's begin uh, as, as I normally do on the show, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that has made you who you are today. Okay. Well, thank you. I'll, in the... In the spirit of genuine inquiry, I will bring in the most recent life-changing event. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went on a vigil for 101 days in a local forest up where I live uh, in the wilds of Dartmoor. It was a time where in England there was a lot of uh, emphasis on climate emergency, a very needed emphasis on climate emergency. 
And there was a lot publicly happening in London through a group called Extinction Rebellion. And I decided to, in that moment of needed extroversion, I decided to offer a weird kind of solidarity to it by disappearing. And I went into this wood fundamentally to listen. So often, uh, us nature lovers are really there for nature to be a kind of therapeutic backdrop or to help us process something. And what that means underneath is we're still there with our little begging bowl. So I went out for 101 days because I know a lot of stories and a lot of poems and a lot of gifts to give something each day. And on the final night, uh, I was going out, do you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it's two years tonight, probably something like that. It's around this time. Hmm. I went up into the woods where there's a Celtic hill fort. It was minus five, uh, to sit it out, to do an all night seat, an all night sit. At this point, I'm just glad the bloody thing is almost over. Uh, I'm not in any remotely, um, traditionally spirit, spiritually orientated frame of mind. I have food in me. I've had a cup of tea. I've walked up. It's merely, uh, a moment of thanks. And then I'm out of there. And it was about three o'clock in the morning when I was up on my feet and I was very aware that if you haven't had the experience of being profoundly alone in a fairly large forest, uh, in the middle of the night, it's a thing, it's a thing you're on high alert. And as I was standing there, I sort of absentmindedly looked up, uh, and there were of course a hundred thousand stars and my mood was good. My mood was peaceful. As I said, come the dawn, the 101 days was over. And suddenly it, it, it's so strange. Um, it's so strange. All I can do is, is just sort of repeat it as I remember it. I saw coming out of the night sky, a stream of colors. Now, if you've mentioned you're from Canada, you'll know what the Aurora Borealis is, mm -hmm. those particular colors. And I, I see them coming out of the sky, heading towards the ground and kind of opening, um, almost like a kite or the tip of an arrow or a firework, but a firework, of course, we see going from the ground and up, but I can see this thing coming down and I'm standing there and already it's glorious. Uh, and, and, um, I suddenly was, it's heading at me and it landed in the forest about, about 10 meters away from me, where we would usually, I'm a wilderness rites of passage guide. It's where the food kitchen would be, where we have our food. And it just landed this, this arrow of light just landed in the ground next to me. These incredible colors, a kind of turquoise and greens and luminescent, utterly silent. Uh, and I was praying, you know, I was praying when this happened, I've been praying for 101 days. So you can imagine that this was old Testament mm. in its power, mm. you know, it's all about context. And this had happened in a context where I was praying for cultural vision, not personal cultural vision. And I sort of danced through the night, boogieing around cause it was so cold. And then finally it was over and I got into bed and as I got into bed, suddenly flashing in front of me were nine words, which I never expected to hear. And they're strange. I'll tell you what they are. Said this, inhabit 
the time and genesis of your original home. Inhabit the time and genesis of your original home. And then they disappeared. I've been stuck for two years with that sentence. Because it's unusual, isn't it? It's got little kind of skips in it. It's not like a ruby soundbite. It's got something in it that you have to puzzle over. It doesn't give its secrets very easily. Inhabit the time and genesis of your original home. Because the, the original home, for me, where I come from, and my family tradition is, is Christianity. It's, and it's Eden. Hmm. So you go as deep as you can into a pagan forest. You gaze as deep as you can into the leafy mysteries of what we call Albion. And peering back at you is the Lord of Hosts. So that's something that I am. The profundity of the love that has been available since that moment is almost beyond measure. But uh, you did ask. I did. So in the spirit of asking, that's been a life-changing experience. And my work at the moment is just sitting in the bumps and the roughage of such a phrase and such a moment up in the woods. That's mm-hmm. uh, beautiful. It's, it's really, um, I mean, first off, thank you for sharing that experience. I think it, it, uh, it speaks volumes and it almost struck me as a koan, you know, almost like a, 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 a parable to sit with and grapple with and to, to try and, and sort through. And I'm curious and there's many questions that come out of this, and maybe I'll just begin with the with the story itself. I'm curious what you what you have done with that. Like, how do you begin to grapple something that monumental? Because I feel like we, as individuals and even culturally, we are met with these large questions, and we can feel inferior to the task of being able to grapple them. <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe that's just where it starts is in our inferiority you know and in our smallness to the question but i'm wondering where you began with that and and what you've sort of made of it and you know i, I heard you talk about the the roots of, of christianity and i'm just curious if you can just elaborate on on some of those pieces because i can imagine my listeners uh sort of hungry for more from there mm, certainly Well, the first thing that you mention is the healthiest spiritual condition of all, which is a grapple Mm. that, you know, anything worth its salt is going to defeat you. Anything worth its salt is going to defeat you. Uh, and I have been thoroughly, (laughs) thoroughly, thoroughly knocked about. I mean, you'll probably be aware of the, uh, the wonderful poet Rilke. And Rilke says a couple of things, but he basically says, look, your successes are embarrassingly small. And each success you have is belittling you in some way. You know, you want to be like Jacob and the angel. You want to be in the presence of something so formidable, so overwhelming, so devastating in its love that you have no choice but to submit. And after 25 years as a wilderness rites of passage guide, I've seen this again and again. You go out to get gloriously defeated by a greater energy. We need as humans to make contact with a profound source of insight that is not just entirely our own psyche. Because that's the problem a little bit with the kind of work that I do is you can interiorize and interiorize stories and spiritual ideas till there's really nothing outside of your own chest. 
Um, and the old Sufi notion, of course, which goes back, I think, to Christianity and other places as well, is that the majority of your soul is outside of your body. You know, it's outside of your body. There's a, there's a porosity that doesn't deny the interior, but it puts it in its rightful position in the Mundus Imaginalis, the great singing of the world. So what have I been doing with it? Well, first of all, I think I just went into shock. I noticed my mood. I've always been a, a moody man. And I noticed that, as my daughter quietly said to me, she said, you just seem happier, like fundamentally happier. There's just something in the deep interior of you that keeps announcing itself through greater kindness. Uh, which, you know, is a very befuddled person. I was thrilled to hear that. But I still didn't have any thought, really, that it would have anything to do with the indigenous, the indigenous faith of my childhood. So I grew up in a house with uh, no telephone, no car, no television, nothing like that. We just had a lot of books. Uh, it was a kind of poverty in a way. But on the other hand, culturally, I was very rich because I was surrounded by books. I was surrounded by a mother and father that regarded language as wealth, which is why I take words so seriously. And it was only really, I had an experience. I went to Ireland. I've been working on an anthology of an Irish philosopher called John Moriarty. And John Moriarty was a very esoteric kind of Christian. And I was talking about him when the book came out. It's called A, a Hut at the Edge of the Village. The, you know, the selected writings for Moriarty. And I said something about him, and I realized it was a moment of profound self-diagnosis. I said this. I said, I think John has a pagan soul and a Christian heart. And the moment I said it, I felt distinctly uncomfortable because I realized I was getting closer in to the counterweight of my spiritual life where actually one is not necessarily in opposition to another, but it's in conversation. There's an old, now who was it? It was Augustine says, all truth comes from God. All truth comes from God. How could it not? So wherever you're encountering profound truth, you're in divine ground. So whether you, whatever you call yourself, whatever spiritual term you may attach to yourself, if you're in the presence of truth, you are near the aboriginal priest of your own soul, as they say. If you're having, if you don't know what to believe anymore, that's quite understandable. Pay attention to your conscience and entertain the possibility that your conscience is God talking to you. And then talk back to your conscience and see what happens. And so I suppose, Connor, What's been convenient is the moment I came out of the forest, literally the moment I came out, COVID began. So I went from one extraordinary um, retreat to another kind of retreat, and I've been on that ever since. And so I'm just working my way through this state deeply and attentively, uh, footprint by footprint. Mm -hmm. I almost want to piece apart, but I, I'd be hesitant to <clears throat> go too too far down this rabbit hole. But what stood out to me is a quote by uh, Richard Rohr that I shared the other day on one of my episodes, who was a Franciscan monk, and he said something along the lines of, uh, 
Kaminsky, who's referring to male initiation, and you're, you're talking a good amount about nature initiations and, and these sort of rites of passages, which is a, a good amount of your work. And he said something along the lines of, um, men need to be brought on a journey of powerlessness, otherwise they will always abuse power. And I think what's interesting about part of the threads that at least I was drawing from as I was listening to you is this kind of relationship with uncertainty, with powerlessness, with the unknown, and there being a truth in that space when we find ourselves powerless, when we find ourselves met with the uncertain, that that maybe can't be uh, spoken or, or maybe it's it's hard to discern the importance of that truth, and so I'm I'm hoping that maybe I've made some sense, and and that you can maybe elaborate on that a little bit in terms of the importance of our relationship to the unknown, to the uncertain, because we we seem to be, and I this again this this is just my notion, but we seem to be uh, entering into territory socially culturally where there are higher and higher states of entropy i guess you could say where things are becoming more and more chaotic less certain um, people seem to be less certain of what they believe in and what they can hold on to and so it's kind of left people moving in these polarized directions of i need to grasp on to what i know to what's certain and other people are sort of disoriented at what the hell is going on so i feel like i just gave you a tremendous amount and i'll let you maybe sort of take that um, yes. as as you will and, and and do your do your work with it yeah so thinking about the richard raw quote uh and I'm very involved at the moment with lots of old Arthurian stories, so stories of Camelot, mm -hmm. and a kind of intrinsic need, I think, especially in men, for that moment you get in these old stories when you say, arise, arise, Sir Galahad, arise, Sir Percival. But that is something that has to be earned. And the problem, of course, is if you just dish out uh endless confirmations to young people, that never leads to a blessing. A blessing is something that is identifiable and specific. It's site-specific, otherwise it will not work. So I like the idea, I am literally just thinking this is, we're here, I like the notion that you can't be knighted till you've been spectacularly defeated. <laughs> and in fact, you are dangerous. You're actually dangerous. You shouldn't be a knight unless we have all publicly witnessed that kind of humbling. Because another thing that Raw says beautifully is we spend the first half of our life putting masks on and we put the second half of our life taking them off. I mean, that really is the function of an adult. Uh, it's extraordinary for a younger person to witness you being able to do that and not to shame the fact that you had to wear a mask. Because as you're growing and as you're younger, you're trying things on. Your identity is naturally porous. You have to defend yourself against a world that doesn't necessarily wish you well. But at 50, God willing, I am all grown up. And the, the profound move is to put down the things that really um, don't serve you. After I'd been a year a year or so into this process from the forest i ended up in in ireland and i went to a cave of an old an old hermit who'd lived in the cave for i think seven years until someone 
I mean, what a culture. To live in a culture where you live, you're in a cave for seven years and someone climbs up the side of the hill and says, you clearly have to be our next bishop. Isn't that wonderful? That you, you've been communing with birds and fleas and stags and salmons and that cross-species communication is exactly what we need in the center of our spiritual life. So I, I went up to the cave and I really liked it. It's very comfortable, a lot of moss, very nice. And I had a dream. I had a dream the next night um, that I was back in the cave and there was a stag filling the entrance. And there was a little light attached to each of the tines. Like a, like, like, in other words, like its antlers were made out of stars. And I suddenly realized I was terribly thirsty. I, I had a, the kind of thirst the desert fathers would understand. And the, the animal leant forward and off each antler dripped water into my young pagan mouth. And I knew peace. Now that's a good way to meet Christ. Come on. Come on. Ah, mm -hmm. uh, and I was staying with a couple of friends of mine actually, and they talked about a religious expression, the third watch of the night. So we go through the first and the second watch of the night. The third is when it's really, really dark. And if you're looking at it at the stage of somebody's life, it could be maybe around the age that I am now, around 50, you know, profoundly into middle age now. Got, you know, could be old age. I, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But the point of the third watch of the night is there can be no more pussyfooting. You were given a voice. What is the point of having a voice if you don't try and, try and tell the truth with it, no matter how difficult? Say the difficult thing. Name the thing that no one is naming. Uh, so that energized me through my autumn and has almost rendered me silent. Um, I can't even remember the last time I did this. You know, I've, I've be, been out of that particular loop. But if, but if you ask the questions that you're asking, as I said, my contract with my maker is I have to tell you, you know, I'm not going to push it on anybody, but, uh, it, but that's the contract. If one asks, you have to, you have to be involved in something called the great commission. You have to tell. Hmm. I would be remiss if I didn't go back to the idea and the notion of the blessing. Yes. And I, I would like to, maybe afterwards, I'd like to sort of get more in, into myth, although I feel like we're inadvertently speaking quite a bit about it. So I'd like to go back to the the notion of the blessing and, and for you to just maybe refine some of that for the listener and what the blessing might mean, look like, um, how it transpires with, within our life and, and the sort of importance of it. Because I think it's that word has sort of been hijacked within mainstream social media um, to mean many, many, many different things. And oftentimes those things are lacking in, in a real type of significance and depth. And the way that you just, just briefly described it, I could feel uh, a heft to it that I hadn't in a long time. And so I'm hoping that you can return to that for me. For sure. So let's think, let's think about the difference between an affirmation and a blessing. One of my, one of my many lives is marking essays. And it's very rare that I can bless a student as I'm grading them. I sometimes bless them with a very low grade. They don't thank me for. But an affirmation says, yes, doing well, think about this, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's, it's, it's okay 
But a blessing has a kind of spiritual acuity in it. Acuity, specificity. I've just come out now from telling the epic story of Parsifal for three days. I've just finished it uh, with a group of 50 of my students. And very early in the morning, I always ask them to write poems. And my school is 18 years now, 18 years old. And in these early, early morning poems, which are almost half dreams, I suddenly heard a woman, I just suddenly heard proper poetry coming from a woman with no background at all in this. As you can imagine, in my world, I meet want-to-be poets every day. And suddenly I'm hearing clearly from a woman who has the capacity to take her elevator down into what we call the chthonic, the deep underbelly, and come up with what the alchemists call prima materia, the stuff that you can turn into gold. Now, that was a moment. If I didn't know what blessing was, I would have kind of carried the day on and maybe had a quiet word with her later. But because I know that blessing has a kairos attached to it, 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 if you don't do it at the time, the moment can pass and it loses its efficacy. So I luckily did what I should have done, which was stopped everything, focused in on this young woman, not young woman, actually, woman of my own age, and just say something extraordinary is happening right now and nothing more is going to proceed until I tell you what I am witnessing from you. And you can probably imagine the effect that it had. And one of the things also I have to say about that is doing it publicly. I remember once being, uh, I was with another teacher, it was John Lee, and John Lee was talking about the amount of men that wait as their wife leaves the room. They say, love that woman. And it's like, buddy, we could rewind this three minutes. And you could have actually said that while she was here. So something about blessing for me is the Kairos moment, the clarity of it, the cleanness of it, that you're not doing it for any, anything other than to just transmit something good. Um, and you're in and then you're out again and that's it. But it is not the same as just general patting on the back and saying, keep going, all will be well, which is useful at times. This is a, a, a different directive. And I didn't experience it in my own life really till I would have been about 35. So I knew the difference because afterwards I was full. That's the other side of the giving of the blessing you will notice that your carnivorous, starving self that wants endlessly to live on the helium of praise is almost, it's not quite ashamed, but it's just like, vroom, oh, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I just tasted the real meat. I just drank the real wine. And actually, I don't need as much of it as I thought I did. There's a guy... Uh, there was a teacher from the South a few years ago, a very brilliant man, Robert Moore. And Robert Moore used to say, if you have a young, a notably younger friend, and in the last two weeks you haven't praised them, you're hurting them. Hmm. You're hurting them if they admire you. Yeah, interesting. And again, he's saying there's somewhere, there's just something to notice. 
just pay attention to some quiet, tacit act of goodness they're involved with and flag it up. Hmm. And and you're saying that that's important to to continue to reaffirm in that direction, or or that it's just something to take note of. I think it's something to take note of, to be aware, to to be aware that we the, the trouble is we are we are over inebriated in 2022 with what they call in religious circles the passions. So we are hugely erotically overstimulated. We are neurotic to the point of madness that we aren't phenomenally well liked, you know, and, and we live in this, this extraordinary technological system that's always applying that pressure on us. You know, God knows as the, as the father of a teenager, you know, the, the likes and all, we all, we know this already. Uh, so I'm not saying that you endlessly just tell someone that they're great, but you, you have to, and I, I think, I suppose I'm, I'm talking to a slightly older audience at this moment. I'm talking to people probably in their thirties and onwards. Just be aware you have a little heft that you might not know about yourself. And if there's younger ones looking at you, you, it's not, as I said, it's not flat affirmations, but for example, you really do need to learn some fairy tales. You really do need to have some stories to pass on. And you need to be able to talk about your life without too much varnish on it. And and ideally not on Zoom, mm. you know, by a fire, in a forest, walking by a river, something that means that nature interacts with the conversation. So, for example, Connor, when I'm learning a story, I very rarely take it to human beings until I've auditioned it in front of crows and herons and cormorants and curly river bends up on the moors and i've put it through the roughage and the protein of nature there's been there's been some feedback across across realms mm. before it comes into the human dimension wonderful well and i i feel like there's a maybe hopefully down the road a, a separate conversation about the stories of king arthur because i feel like there's a very fruitful especially for my audience a very fruitful um, conversation over, over the course of an interview to go into some of those. I would like to give more time and space to that. But I, I would like to sort of shift gears into, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of people about myth. It's something that I've been um, very in, intrigued by. And, you know, over the years, I've I have a very Jungian framework. And I think what's interesting about Jung is that he sort of went into the psyche and, you know, so so deep into it that it came out the side of of myth and and god on the other side which is quite quite fascinating into itself but you talk in your work quite a bit about where myth can lead us in our current times and i would just like to maybe start there in terms of where do you get a sense and, and maybe why is that important and relevant maybe we'll just start there like how does myth uh inform us about our current times and and maybe what can it say to us about the times that we're in right now well good question i think most of us would agree that there is <laughs> there's we're in an era of jeopardy and we're in an era of peril and jeopardy and peril are the very life stuff of myth no story begins the day that not much happened <laughs> the stories begin when it all it, it, a lot happened 
a lot happened. Right. Your version of the Shire or your version of everything that is familiar and, and like the Lotus Eaters in, in, uh, the Odyssey, anything that's, anything that sedates you is roughly taken away and a journey begins and you have to set out and you are going to be pulverized, challenged. You might lose loved ones. You may die yourself, but one way or another, you are going to say yes to the encounter. You're going to say yes to the encounter. You are going to trade, as I often say, comfort for shelter. We are a comfort anesthetized culture, but what we need is spiritual shelter. We are worshipful people. We are worshipful yeah. people. Hasn't gone away. I am fully conversant with the destructive elements of almost all religions. However, we're always going to worship something. And so when when a culture loses its sense of divine ground, which is a, a phrase this chap Moriarty used to use, John Moriarty, the Irishman, we're still going to serve in some kind of temple. So my question would be, in what temple do you serve? Where are you showing up to? Wherever you're putting the most of your energy, that's the place that you're serving in. We need myth especially because myth most of the time doesn't actually require you to, it doesn't put this huge emphasis on factual belief in a way that many religions do, but it still allows the oxygen of your imagination to receive mythic images. We are, we are, although metaphor gets overused, we are symbolic people. We are, we go through difficult things and we naturally try and interpret. And myths have been really our most phenomenal form of spiritual interpret interpretation for many, many years. Now I'd say more than that, what we are forgetting, and I'm critical to some degree of the overly breathless therapeutic approach to myth is when you get myth outside of the West, when you get myth into what we would think of as Aboriginal or indigenous cultures, you feel in these stories that the earth itself is thinking its way through the stories. It's no longer a man or a woman by the fire worried about the enormity of consciousness and crafting a little tale to make them feel good. There's a return message within these stories. And there's times where you feel there is an animal power announcing itself or a stretch of river bend. And then suddenly your perception of the earth is no longer existential and neurotic. It's a world of relationship. When you live in a world of relationship, this thing called a heart gets involved, it warms up, we all warm up, we start to make different decisions about our life, and suddenly, reverie leads to participation. Reverie mm. leads to participation. And when you participate, and when you put your heart and soul into things, you influence other people, and suddenly, you're Robin fucking Hood. Mm. <laughs> Which we all <laughs> want to be. Yeah, this is like, I was like, yeah, that's, that's where we yeah. want to go. Right. Is yeah. <laughs> I've just walked it through, you know, several books in like 10 sentences, but that's basically where I suggest we should head up. <laughs> that was great. Well, I think, uh, you know, a, a few of the things that stood out to me were the, the notions of spiritual shelter and, uh, reverie, reverence, 
Um, although maybe there's a dist- distinction between the two um, that we could get into. But yeah, I remember reading David Foster Wallace, who was an author in the States, and he had this talk where he said, yeah, everybody worships. Everybody, every human being worships something, whether they know it or not. And it seems to me, for the most part, that as we have let go of religious worship as a culture, we have attached to unconscious worshiping of things that we that we weren't even aware of, right? Ideologies, political beliefs, etc. And uh, and so I'm I'm curious if you can expand on. First off, I mean, do you agree with that, or or is there something that you would add to that that concept that we're we're removing from religious worship and or spiritual worship, and and attaching to other forms of maybe materialistic worship, and and secondly, if you can talk maybe a little bit more in depth on on the spiritual shelter notion that you were pointing towards. Yes, of course. Yeah, I think everything you're saying is is along the right track. We certainly in, in, I can't really speak for America, but certainly in Britain, we've been, we've been on the run from, (laughs) we've been on the run from the deep stuff since the Reformation. We now have religion, but religion is not a, it's not a terribly energized word. William Blake always used to say, why does the word devil have so much more energy than the word God? And he was a Christian. And he said, you know, no one with an imagination could, you couldn't not be a Christian. You know, it was inevitable. Uh, how how else is God going to talk to you? But of course, we're weary. We're weary of God and and gods and religion and power and colonialism and the whole thing. So most of us have tipped the baby out with all conceivable bathwater. But it's that thing I was saying a minute ago, where where does your conscience come from? What's talking to you? What if you spoke back to it? What if you started to make the difficult decisions that it was asking from you? I'm not asking you to sign up, you know, to a particular name at this point, but I guarantee, I guarantee that our spiritual malaise isn't going anywhere with whatever technology is we're provided with, no matter how stupefying it appears, which it is, the soul condition is not going to change. You will remain hungry for something the passions cannot provide. You will. And a functioning faith or a functioning religion or a functioning engagement, let's call it, the one thing it's going to do to you is give you the requisite distance you need from your impulse system to gradually go through a process of tempering into growing yourself to becoming a full human being. You mentioned a big word earlier on, the word initiation. And can, you know, the perennial question, can people, especially people of our pigment, you know, can you even go anywhere near initiatory ground? I could talk about this for days, but what I can say is throughout your life, inevitably you will be tempered. You will be tempered. It might not come in these big dramatic crossroads moments, but incrementally you will. And one of the things that COVID providers provided us with is it took us into the company of the goddess of limit, took us into the company of the goddess of limit. And we start trading. And I've said this before, we, could we sacrifice a little growth for some depth? Could we, could we stop being an ever widening orbit 
And could we actually play closer and more specific ground to what's underneath us? And a couple of books that I wrote, Courting the Wild Twin and a book called Smoke Hole, are all about that. They're like, just get down to the fundament of what's right underneath your feet, because that's the only place Google Earth can't get to. See, it's, that's your job. The fundament underneath you, the horrendous family you've been born into, the town you can't identify with, that's mythic ground. So coming back, Connor, to your question, why do we need the myths? Why do we need the stories? They're there because when we fall entirely out of story, a degree of despair can arrive that no amount of wealth can clarify, can make better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I wonderfully articulated. I, so many things. I mean, I feel like I've just, just been doing this. I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm, yep, yes, yep, yep. <laughs> this, this entire conversation, I couldn't help but feel a kind of tether to Richard Rohr who talks about the prayer as contemplation, contemplative prayer, that and I've heard many different versions of this, that the prayer isn't a kind of wish-making, right? That God isn't a genie that we just sit down at the altar to and make wishes to and and put our hopes hopes out to, but that seems to have become modern-day prayer in a way, and I think it's why so many people, you know, are are put off. Like, I remember growing up and going to church every Sunday, and I got into my late teens, early 20s, and I was like, this is absurd. Why am I just sort of putting my my hopes out? You know, this doesn't, it, There's a, there was a felt embodied disconnection, but the process that I feel like you just outlined to some degree felt like a much more it felt like it had orientation as prayer in some degree and and maybe i'll just pause there and, and get your thoughts on that yes uh i remember meeting an old, an old lady was watching me work a few years ago and she said story is a cloak you throw over your audience to do your real work and she was right and old women spot this stuff uh, and she was also right in the sense that I never tell a, I never tell a story that isn't a kind of praying. Now, if Richard Raw was sitting here with us right now, I bet what he would say is this. There's a difference between transactional prayers and transformational prayers. And we live in a transactional culture, not a transformative culture. We need, we need to give that up. We absolutely need to give it up. It is inappropriate for an adult to behave in that way. We all understand it. I fall back on it myself, but predominantly, um, it's always good if you, when you're praying, don't go straight into the wish list. Don't go straight into the wish list. You know, find some suitable, simple, powerful set of words that makes contact with the presence the indwelling presence. It's a lovely phrase. Make contact with the indwelling presence that, that knew your name and loved you before you ever were born. I mean, come on, do that. And then what happens is that presence very quickly, the prayer, you suddenly realize you're not speaking anymore because the prayer has orientated itself here in the heart. And it moves out of the heart. Like, you know how birds in the dark seek echolocation, owls? Mm -hmm. Owls bump into, they're looking for warm mammals to connect with. And you send out your echolocation to divine ground. 
and suddenly you're in a prayer. You're into, again, what I think Richard Raw would say, you know, the cosmic, profound uh, level of prayer that's nothing to do with, could you make Yvonne like me a little bit more? It's been not good between us recently. There's places for that. You can light a candle for that if you must. Um, but really, I'm trying to get back to this notion that you get in, in Sufism and other places of a, as what Hillman would call a thought of the heart, a recalibration of the heart, because you can tell immediately when someone's coming from that place. You just fucking know. And no matter how smart someone is, no matter how much information they've got at their, their fingertips, we can smell wisdom. You smell it. And let's, let's be around that more, you know? Mm -hmm. So yes, I must admit it's something, it's another word that seems to have become a bit abstract. There could be a better word for it. Be a praise maker to the yellow breast of the moon. Maybe that's better. You know, find something, go out every night and smoke a cigar and look at the plow and don't stop till you've made the plow blush. Don't make, don't stop till the, you've seen the stars move towards you. That that's a way, that's a connected universe. And you go to work in the, in the shopping mall the next day and you feel different. That felt nourishing in a way, you know, I envisioned standing out smoking a cigar and doing just that. And something within <laughs> me was like, I think I need to do that in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> I feel, I feel a pull towards that. I guess, you know, there's, I feel uh, a deep sense of wanting to stay in communication with you for as long as humanly possible. I mean, I could talk with you for, for ages, but uh, you know, we do have to uh, play by the limitation <clears throat> as you were talking about before. And so, Maybe what I would like to end on is this notion of maybe like the natural, I don't know how to word this, but the natural hesitation or the proclivity to want to avoid going down, going underneath ourselves. Because you had this great quote that said, by going deeper into myth, I go deeper into love. And when I go deeper into love, innately I find morality. I locate a true north in my heart. That's it. And yeah. I have found that a lot of people have a hesitation of this sort of deep concern of what they will find and what they might come into contact with by going deep, by going underneath. And so I'm hoping that maybe you can just speak to that briefly. And then how do we sort of coerce ourselves or overcome that or, you know, support people in, in that journey? Support is is the big word, Connor, because, you know, one should never fetishize the underworld, never fetishize that, because actually a lot of us are very fragile, very tired, very disorientated, have gone there in what they, the anthropologists, we, we're all very familiar with the word liminal, but there's a liminoid as well. And liminoid is when you get the trauma, not the rapture. You can't glean anything out of it. It's just weird shit that happened. So actually, I think, you know, the old notion of a mentor or being in a group where you're held, if you're climbing down the well, you know, there's a bunch of sisters or brothers or, or people that are going to help pull you back up again. If possible, don't do that work alone, you know? And also, if you're living in a town where conversation is hard to find, good conversation is hard to find, over this winter, decide that you're going to pick from history two new teachers decide that you're going to investigate the love poetry 
of Mirabai, the great Indian poetess, for her divine Krishna, uh, decide that you're going to dis- you're going to explore the painting techniques of Caravaggio, but just do something that lifts you out of yourself. Allow it to be grand if it has to be, or you know how to plow a field. But one way or another, in the end, descent is inevitable, and that's why myth and initiation always deals with the catabasis. It always deals with those sudden those sudden falls. But the thing to take courage is that if you survive that encounter, you are meant to come back with a gift. For a while, you may not have the language for that gift, but it needs to come back to a group of people or animals or a landscape that can fundamentally drink from it. In the end, you have to become a river for your people become a river for your people. But there's too many of us doing this stuff precariously. We are too connected to the feral and not enough to the wild. Feral, wild, not the same. So, uh, yeah, another conversation, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful. Well, I think that's probably a good place to to pause. And I feel like the, the feral and the wild will hopefully come up in in round two of our conversation, should there be one, along with the stories of King Arthur, which are are fascinating. I started to get into some of them recently and was like, whoa, <laughs> this is this is tremendous. So um much to much to glean from there. For people that want to get further into your work, uh, where where do you suggest that they begin? Go to systemistica.com, and that's sister like C, not S, C-I-S-T-A, mystica.com. All my books are there. I have a school of myth. You can actually come and study with me in the wild west country of Britain. A lot of people do. People come from all over the world for that. Um, I have an MA, Poetics of Imagination, so you can become a scholar. Occasionally, I will take on PhD students. And most importantly, before I forget, Connor, the best thing you can do is actually subscribe to me on Substack Hmm. because I've just started something called the House of Beasts and Vines. And for the price of a New York pint, for the price of one New York pint every week on a Sunday, reconsecrate the Sabbath in some strange way, you can wake up and you can go, you know what? I'm just going to listen to Martin telling a story by a Devon River, or I'm going to read an essay he has on the voyage of Brendan or the fall in the underworld. That would be a good thing. Check me out on Substack. And if if you like that, you'll like the deeper stuff. Beautiful. Well, we'll have all the links to that in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Shaw, such an honor and a pleasure. I really thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. So thank you so much for being here. 